no amateur if you're able to sit through verse by verse through the book of Isaiah. And if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 10. We will consider the hero judge this evening. And we'll get right to it. Verse 1. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, verse 2, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. Legalized government crimes, that's what this is. These are gangster governors, and they assume immunity, that they're going to get away with it. And they may get away with it for a lifetime. Um, this, these two verses should be posted on, in every branch of the government. The executive, the judicial, the legislative, every courthouse in, in the world ought to have these two verses from Isaiah. Uh, their abuse of power abused people. It wasn't as though they were just, you know, uh, making underhanded deals. They were hurting people. And the group hit the hardest by life were now hit the hardest by those who were supposed to be their shepherds. So uh, it's just wrong all the way around. Cowardly uh, they were, preying on the defenseless. Verse 3, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your glory? So, to whoever the prophet is addressing this to, it applies to anyone guilty of these crimes. Um, In this chapter, once we get to verse 4, it really tunes in on to a period of time that deals with uh, that time when Samaria has already fallen. The first four verses could go with the previous chapter, or they could stand independently. Uh, But here, it's a haunting question, dodged by, I think, most people for most of their lives. They don't want to hear about what will you do in the day of punishment. Uh, The chilling reality of judgment on the wicked is that there's no alternative. Once they're they're dead, there's no alternative left. Judgment is, is already sealed for them. Here in verse 3, where he says, the desolation which will come from afar. Well, for Judah and, well, for Israel, the northern kingdom, it was Assyria. For Judah, it will be both Assyria, and then it will be Babylon. And uh, that all brought upon themselves, by themselves. And here's this righteous man, Isaiah, in the middle of it, who is documenting Not only the history, but God's response to what is going on. There's a lot of suffering going on in Israel at the time that this man ministered. Even in the days of the good kings, uh, such as Hezekiah, a lot of suffering took place because they chose to infest the land with false beliefs and disrespect Yahweh. In verse 4, he says, "...without me they shall bow down among the prisoners." And they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Well, that happened to the northern kingdom, and and it won't be turned away from the southern kingdom. But that, verse 4 again, without me. Well, God's presence means more than something. It means everything. What believer wants to be anywhere without the presence of God? I mean, that's how we define hell. Although Satan doesn't rule hell, that would be a reward. God rules hell too. But uh, what's the benefit if you're there? Or really none. Uh, precisely what Moses was saying. Lord, if you, if you don't go with us, don't send us. I, I don't want to go without you. So that without me is, is a charged word from the prophet. And he is telling the people that you're going to be defeated. You're going to be made prisoners uh, as the Assyrians did to the north and much of the south, uh, because you are without me. Uh, the secret blessing of the believer is God's presence, a strength against any foe, regardless of what the foe does. When Paul was beheaded, God was with him, and Paul knew it. And so did the other martyrs. 
uh, Stephen, when he was being stoned, he saw the Lord. He didn't see himself being forsaken by God. He saw God standing to, to receive him into heaven. How you look at it makes all the difference. So uh, Yahweh, not Assyria's gods, will hold them accountable. So the six things that they are guilty of here in these first four verses is making unjust laws, issuing oppressive decrees, depriving the poor, that is the weak and the feeble, the helpless, depriving them of their rights, God-given rights, uh, taking away justice from the land, hurting widows, and robbing the fatherless. They were stacking up the charges against themselves, and they had no justification for it. What could they say in the presence of God for doing these things? Now, verse 5, the prophet explicitly turns his attention to the then world power, in, or the power in that region, and there was nobody on earth that could take out Assyria at this time amongst the nations. So verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Well, according again to verse 11, the northern kingdom has already fallen. So he's addressing Assyria while Assyria is making raids in the south, in Judah. And over there were three large raids. The largest one was not a raid, it was a full-out invasion. And so were some of the others, the other two. Um, so they're being addressed now. And God is saying that he used them to chasten Israel, that they were his, uh, staff in his a staff in his hand for his indignation against Israel. God employed the, the idolatrous Assyrians to judge his people, but he notifies them through the prophet that they're going to be judged also. Just because God is using them does not mean they are excused from the wickedness that they do. What a lesson to mankind today. And God can use you, and you still be very much wrong with him. You still be very much going to hell. I'm not talking about those who've given their life to Christ. Humanity in general can do decent things. God uh, has, has obligated himself to bless humanity in many ways, or else humanity would fall apart. How, I mean... Uh, the first people that were created or through procreation, um, you know, after Adam and Eve and the societies began to build, they had to be taught a lot of things. You, they wouldn't be able to figure out and survive. God had to give knowledge in a special way way back then. And as time has gone on forward, God has opened up knowledge to man when he is good and ready. And most of mankind traveled at the speed of horse for how many centuries? Millennium. And now, you know, we're traveling at the speed of, of, of rockets. So if you look at these things in history, you see that it was almost a door shut to human knowledge. And then God opened it up a little bit. And the knowledge began to increase. And, and look at us now, unlike ever before. But most of humanity hasn't been this way as far as the technological advances. Anyway, Assyria was his rod, as he says, his club, his axe, and his saw. And uh, uh, they treated, we read that in verses 5, 15, and 24. But verse 6 tells us that they treated the Jews like mud in the streets. God's keeping a record of that. God sent the Assyrians to judge Israel to take the spoil. What Assyria did was mock Yahweh and try to destroy as many human beings as they could. They were savages in that regard. They considered themselves conquerors. And God said, no, you exceeded, you exceeded the, uh, the, the, the privilege given to you. They plundered the land, we're told in verse 14, like a farmer gathers eggs. And so God's purpose to discipline... But Assyria, of course, went savage, as verse 7 will point out also. And then, in verses 8 through 14, they boasted of their conquest while insulting Yahweh 
at the same time. So that's an overview. We'll get some of the details. But look at it in history, what Isaiah is faced with. The kings of Assyria being God's instrument of punishment to a rebellious people. And if the Jews weren't punished for how they treated God, what would that say of God? They forced his hand. And uh, God is blameless in his judgments. He always is. Well, there's an unmentioned king in Scripture from Assyria that speaks of defeating Ahab and forcing Jehu to pay him tribute. There is another uh, Assyrian king, Pol by name, who took tribute from Mahanaim, a king in the north. There's a third Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. He carried two and a half tribes into captivity from the uh, east side of Jordan. There's a fourth Assyrian king, Shalamaneser. He laid siege to Samaria, the northern kingdom's capital. Then a fifth king, Sargon, he took the capital, um, Shalmaneser having died. Then there's a sixth Assyrian king, Sennacherib. He took all the fortified cities of Judah and uh, of, of Judah, not Jerusalem, but all the other cities, from Hezekiah, a godly king, forced Hezekiah to buy safety uh, to pay off uh, the uh, Sennacherib from coming into Jerusalem. And then there's a seventh Assyrian king, Estradadon. Uh He had Man- Manasseh, who is not yet alive, uh, brought as a prisoner to Babylon. And so there we see Assyria being used as a scourge on an idolatrous people, a people that were claiming Yahweh as God, uh, and yet worshiping and practicing all sorts of heinous, uh, everything from ripping off the poor and, and taking advantage of widows to child sacrifice and other such things. So here Isaiah calls Assyria uh, their monarchs the rod of God's anger. But he's, of course, including, he's not leaving out an important part. He's, and this would get to Assyria. Uh, he's not leaving out, oh, and by the way, God's going to deal with you, and you know you deserve it. They wouldn't believe that. They dismissed it. And the Babylonians will come along and fulfill these prophecies. We'll get about five chapters of Isaiah talking about Assyria judgment. And, and that's why we're going to move through chapter 10 a little bit faster than normal, at least that's the plan, because we're covering so much their coming judgment. In verse 6, God says, I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire in the streets. God's going to allow this, but he didn't. This is something they wanted to do. Judah is considered the ungodly uh, nation at this point for how they treated their Bibles. If you got nothing else out of tonight's study, that is one thing that you should come away with. Judah is considered ungodly for how they treated their Bible. How many people claim to be Christians but are ungodly because of how they treat their Bible? They ignore it. They don't even read it. Probably can't find, find it if it's in their house. There's whole religions that tout Jesus Christ, just not interested in what his Bible has to say. All of of the northern kingdom, they had the law of Moses. Look how they treated it. They discarded it as though it was unimportant. Judah's doing the same thing. Not every single person. There's a remnant, Isaiah being one of them. But the, the multitudes, they trampled the word of God. This is something going on to this day. Is that not a fair question to someone who claims to be a Christian and knows nothing of the Bible, you can say, you know, consider how you treat God's word. You just ignore it. Like, like you don't need it in life. God's view is the opposite of that. We want his presence. That was Isaiah was talking about. My presence being with you. Well, what can you know about the presence of God unless he tells you? Well, if he doesn't tell you, if you don't listen to that, you're just making it up, and that is the definition of idolatry, making up things about God. He, de- he despises that, especially when there's so much revelation available. In verse 7, 
Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. And so there God is saying, um, he's just a savage at this point. He doesn't think he's my instrument. Uh, He doesn't think that there's any problem with what he's doing. There's a big problem with it. They saw themselves as conquerors, not instruments of God, even though Isaiah's word was available to them. And they would have known it. We, we find that when we come to Jeremiah's ministry, we find Nebuchadnezzar knows what Jeremiah is saying. It's being reported to him. And that's why Jer- Jeremiah receives such a nice treatment from the Babylonians when they finally do enter into uh, Jerusalem. They take care of him because they saw him call it like it was. Anyway, verse 8, For he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Now, what he is, is one of three things. Well, two things on this one. The kings which he had conquered, um, they either became subject princes to the Assyrians, making them vassal kings, or he's saying here that the Assyrian nobles are so wealthy and have enough power and dominion in their own territories that it's as though they were kings. Either one fits. Both could be true. Um, In verse 9, he mentions these cities. I'm going to skip some verses just for time's sake and the benefit of not having to mention these names. But the list of cities uh, that are in verse 9 are cities that have already fallen to Assyria, and therefore Assyria was boasting of her invincibility. Well, we see this with, with people today, just boasting how... You know, man can do this and mankind can do that, and pretty soon man's going to have all the... Man's never going to stop sin. It's never going to happen. Uh, and uh, there'll always be wickedness and harm to others as a testimony to the Word of God. Uh, verse 10, As my hand has found the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria... As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? And so there, verse 11 tells us that Samaria is already taken out. That's how I understand that verse, and and I think most commentators do. Um, The infestation of carved images. Now, this could mean one of three things. Either Israel had fallen not only into idolatry, but into an inferior brand of idolatry. You know, it's like, how do you you belong to an inferior false religion when by definition they're all inferior? And so there's degrees, and there are. Some of you just scratch your head. Uh, Look at the Branch Davidians, David Koresh. I mean, it's like, man, what were they thinking? There's another one. They killed themselves waiting for the spaceship to come. But first they mutilated themselves first. This, I don't think this is 20 years old, uh, that event, episode. Anyway, uh, this also could mean the Assyrians viewed Yahweh as an inferior deity, which they did. I think it means, means both, that they, they mocked the Jews and their idolatry. They, the Jews were, many of them, mingling Yahweh into their false religions. And the Assyrians just made mockery of all of it. Uh, Assyria thought her military victories were spiritual victories. So if they conquered a, a city, and they did many, they felt this because their gods were better than the gods they, of the cities they conquered. And they, they lumped Yahweh in with that. And that's what he's going to hold them accountable to also. Um, during Isaiah's ministry in Jerusalem, it was filled with idols, it's far worse by the time Jeremiah comes along a hundred years later. Now, verse 12, we'll take verse 12 through 15. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. (laughs) God is just sick of his face. Uh, as, as, as the nation goes, 
Verse 13, for he says, the Assyrians, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Verse 14, my hand has found like a nest of riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. In other words, it's like taking candy from a baby, going around conquering everybody. Uh, verse 15, now is God's response. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. And so the prophet is saying, Assyria, you're simply my instrument. And if you take a screwdriver and you uh, tighten a screw, you don't praise the screwdriver. Oh, what a one, well, you, you know, some degrees like, thank you, I didn't have to use a stick uh, in that sense, of course. But it's you, you're the operator. Uh, you get the credit, not the screwdriver. And, and when you mess, mix that up with God, you're guilty. And Assyria was doing that. God is saying, you're just an instrument. This is not, I could have squashed you at any point, but instead I used you. You would think Mab, uh, Babylon, who also had these writings, would have learned. And they did not. But God sent Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And that all of the kings I mentioned from Assyria, we, we don't read of any of the prophets having the influence on them like Daniel had on Nebuchadnezzar. Anyway, mankind boasting is, is just setting him up for judgment to God. God owns all the knowledge. He could have withheld, you know, he, God allowed man to develop a steam engine, for example, to harness electricity. God allowed those things, and he could have withheld them, and he, and he has not. So the Assyrians, still accountable, verse 16, Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like a burning of a fire, verse 17. So the light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Well, the judgment of the holy one, we get that in Isaiah 37. We got it in Kings already, where God uh, just wiped out 185,000 Assyrian troops, and they never came back to the promised land again after that. And that's what's referenced there. We don't have time to read it, but the language about um, the giving them leanness is, is in that description. Verse 18, and it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they will, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away. So the soul and the body, the internal and the external, it's an utter uh, destruction of a whole army, a whole army demolished. Verse 19, then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. So that's a little hyperbole and metaphor. The remaining trees are the soldiers, and he's saying there are going to be so few of them, a kid can count them on his hand. You know, that's, again, hyperbole. Uh, the recipient of these judgments would understand what they meant. <laughs> he's saying, what are you saying? My army's going to be wiped out? And I say, that's exactly what God is promising. And uh, that is exactly what's happening. Uh, the closest you can come to an Assyrian army today is the Iraqi army. And that's it. And we know what happened with, <laughs> to them. Verse 20, and well, they're not strictly Assyrians. Other peoples and tribes mix in, but Assyria's in, ancient Assyria is in modern-day Iraq's territory. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped 
of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and truth. Well, Isaiah, the prophets are always including some ray of hope for the future generations, signaling to the remnant that suffers through these things that God's got this, but there's going to be suffering. Um, and that's how it, you know, when Paul was called to the ministry, God said, show him how many things he's going to suffer for my name. Uh, it's, you, the righteous accept this because we see the overall picture and what's, we know what's going on because God has revealed it. In verse 21, uh, let me pause there. I don't think God showed Moses what he was going to face. Moses knew it. And that's, again, why Moses declined the calling and, and, and advised God that he should get somebody else. Uh, it's just an interesting human thing. You know, you can't escape these human things because you want to be pious. But the fact is, that righteous man, Moses, and he was one of the greatest men in all Scripture. Um, he, he, uh, he understood what the challenge was, and he preferred to be left alone. And like Jonah... God influenced him. He didn't force him, but he sure influenced him. Anyway, uh, takes all types, right? You look at the Bible characters, it takes, you had the beauty queen, you know, you got all these different types that God uses and uh, doesn't rebuke them for a, a lot of the things that they struggled with. Aren't we happy about that? Because uh, as David said, if God should, you know, count all my iniquity... Uh, there'd be nothing left. If you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could, who could survive? Verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Uh, now, that's a big word, big point that he makes there. Verse 22, for though your, for though your people, O Israel. And he's talking, now, when he uses Israel at this point, he's talking about all the Jewish people, not the northern kingdom, um, but all, Judah and all the tribal members. So he says, O Israel, verse 22, be as the sand of the sea, though Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, verse 23, for the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Now Isaiah mentions remnant four times in this one paragraph verses 20 through 23, his son, he named his eldest son, Shier Jeshub, which is a remnant shall return. The mighty God of verse 21 is the Messiah of Isaiah 9, 6. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, you know, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. The same character, this will come out further in chapter 11. Uh, so he says, from a remnant, what he's saying here, Israel will revive to righteousness. Well, when does that happen? It really hasn't happened yet. So Paul in Romans 9, chapter 27, applies verses 22 and 23, as we know them in Isaiah, to the Jews coming out of the great tribulation period. It's a far reach of God's word. God acts like he's got, you know, as though he's eternal. Because he is. And he shares, these, he presents himself that way. And it's up to us to pick it up when he's doing it. In okay, he's going eternal now. Because we have enough information to come to these conclusions. We're not like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, spiritualize and make allegory out of everything. No, we have, we have a, a consistent record. And we'll come to that when we talk about the number seven this evening uh, verse, I'm doing pretty good. I feel like, for time-wise, well, I'm aiming for chapter 12. I feel like the rabbit. I'm going to take a little nap. I'm so far ahead, that turtle will never catch me. Therefore, thus says, verse 24, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people, oh, wait a minute, yeah, I haven't read that yet, who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian he shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. Now, pause there. There's nothing encouraging about that in the short term. If you're living, he said, well, wait a minute. They, they oppressed us in Egypt. 
Uh, what are you saying? When we get to chapter 12, the prophet is going to praise God. Just a whole, it's a psalm of Isaiah. Because he was surrounded by people who felt they didn't need to praise him. So he has this outburst. Okay, there, I've commented on verse 12, so we're already done with that chapter. Uh, anyway, he continues in verse 25, for yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease as my anger, as will my anger in their destruction. So this recalls the church at Smyrna. The difference is, Smyrna was not chastened by God, but she was persecuted. Israel, as a people, because of their rampant idolatry, God had to deal with them. And the righteous just suffered along with them. And you say, well, where else is that? Well, Daniel and going into captivity with Azariah, Mishael, and, and um, the other one. I know his name, but I want to see who you get it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? Uh, so they had to suffer. Go, they went as prisoners. They left their families behind. They had to suffer. They were righteous men. So this is not something we should be shocked by. Uh, you know, the, the, it rains on the just and the unjust. It's how we behave in these circumstances. Look at Jeremiah, how much he suffered because he was surrounded by fools in power. We know some of their names because they're told. Nancy... Chuck, they had to suffer these fools. And meanwhile, you know, you don't see any of these politicians that are wicked. They're not missing any meals, are they? They're living high up on the hog. Anyway, Revelation 2, the Lord says to Smyrna, that church, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. That's irrational for the natural man. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Because that's all he can see is what's natural. He can't see the prize for the high calling of God. Uh, the born again have those kind of eyes. And so here God is saying to his remnant, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He will strike you with the rod. Well, he's talking to his people, the remnant. So back to Smyrna. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's Christianity. And I don't think any Christian says, I'd like to sign up for persecution. But I think we all, in our minds, says, Lord, if I'm ever persecuted, I hope I come through like the morning star, that is just this you know, bright witness to you. Well, we're going to... You, if you must, you can read verses 26 through 33 anytime you want. Just not out loud right now. But I will comment on those verses, just this. It lists these cities. And these cities are listed uh, in order of moving closer to Jerusalem. These are cities the Assyrians are conquering one by one, and they're coming towards Jerusalem. Of course, the, Babel, uh, the Assyrian army will reach Jerusalem in their final invasion into the promised land. And that's when the angel of the Lord takes them out. So, uh, verse 34, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And that's the same mighty one of verse 21 of Isaiah 9, 6. That's the judgment on Assyria, <clears throat> and they were brought to nothing. And now, chapter 11. Now we meet the hero judge who is in charge of everything that we were talking about in chapter 10. He is still a judge. A judge, his decisions affect the life of those before him. In some way, he has a lot to do with that individual's life. Is that not God? Is not he? Daniel said, God is my judge. That's what his name, Daniel, means. God is my judge. And so now we get an Old Testament uh, portrait of him, again, in this 11th chapter, which is a Messianic chapter. And uh, it's, it is the coming, it is a prophecy of the coming kingdom of Messiah, we know as the millennial kingdom. And uh, at, this will be long after the days of the Assyrian terror 
and all the others, the Nazi Germany terror, this will be long after. And so we read, well, parts of it will be, because there is the coming of the Messiah himself. In verse 1 of Isaiah 11, there shall come from a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch, uh, and a branch shall grow out of his, his roots. I think some translations do a better job with the Hebrew than the New King James and maybe even the older King James. Again, the translators looking for, you know, to close to the original Hebrew, even though they're idioms sometimes. But, and so I don't want to try to justify why they chose rod. It should, I think, a closer rendering looking up the Hebrew is, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so you have this tree that's been felled, and yet, being a hardwood, evidently, it sprouts up life again. And that's the kingdom of Judah. Judah was this tree that's been chopped down in judgment. And yet there's life still in it because the source, the root, is still uh, pushing life into the stump. So with the invasions and the deportations of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Davidic line was almost wiped out. And God is saying to his people, you can't, you can't wipe out the Davidic line. It's not going to happen. I'm making this promise to you. So the rod, the stump, metaphor for the restoration of the Messianic line, which is Christ. And the branch is metaphor for the Messiah himself. Zechariah 3.8 brings that out. And so what we have here in verse 11 is God saying, yeah, the Davidic line is, was almost destroyed, but there's still life, and just a twig will sprout first, and that twig becomes the branch. And many tie that into the, from the Hebrew into the word Nazarene. I'm not sure I can get back behind that 100%, but I can't dispute it either. So maybe you've heard that before. I, I throw that out there. So all that was left of the royal house was this stump because of their, the degeneration of the descendants of David, the kings Ahaz and Ahab and all the wicked ones. Uh, the, so God chopped it down. Now, he says, and a branch, verse 1, shall grow out of his roots. So there we have. Listen to what Paul says about this. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. That's, that's what he's talking about. He may not have Isaiah 1 in mind because it's, it's, it's elsewhere. The fact is taught. But it's a perfect match. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And, um, you know, the tragedy is that the Jews will not recognize Christ as, you know, one generation can raise up the next generation in righteousness according to Scripture, or they can dumb them down. And the Jewish people as a whole, sadly, choose to dumb down. They raise their children to believe that Jesus Christ is a false prophet uh, and not to accept him. They actively teach their children what the Christians will say to them and that we're, they're not to believe them, not to engage them. I remember years ago speaking to a Jewish uh, bookseller in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which used to have the largest, I think, Jewish population outside of Israel. Um, anyway, uh, he was very much friendly as long as I was talking to him about the Kabbalah. But um, when I started asking questions about the Messiah, that ended that conversation. He just shut me off, wouldn't even just walked away. He just made it clear, don't follow me. I could have taken him, but... <laughs> You know, he had that little hat on, and I was just so taken by it. Anyway, uh, David. David's such a brilliant man of God. I mean, in spite of his sin, who doesn't have sin among us? Had it not been for David, who would know anything about Jesse? You see how powerful, the, that, how influence can be? Jesse gets to have his name associated with the Messiah. Because not of his other sons, because of this son. And that would cause one to say, well, what makes him so special? And, of course, that's why we study, uh, you know, in the first and second Samuel, for example, to, 
to learn about David. Once you read about David dancing before the ark of the Lord with all of his might, how can you ever forget that, that scene? Well, there's other cross <clears throat> references to make, but time won't allow. Um, okay, 6.13, Isaiah 6.13, we'll take that one. But yet a tenth will be in it, and it will return and be for consuming a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Now, remember I said that, you know, we don't just make these things up. We, we tie them in. The revelation is here. The Bible is like a hologram. It's a complete picture. And if you cut that hologram, you just have to look a little harder, but the picture's still there, unlike a regular photo. You cut it in half, and it's, you, you lost the other piece. Uh, but a hologram is complete in itself. And in the scripture is, is like that. It, it's got what we need to draw sensible conclusions. One of them is it's a senseless conclusion to disregard the word of God. Verse 2, now speaking about this branch, he says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Attributes of God owned by Christ. They were all his. He didn't start becoming these things. He's always been. He just came into view. And that coming into view ties him into what the prophets were saying was coming so that we could trust the word of God. The sure word of a predictive prophecy. Not only do we have predictive prophecy, we have just the, the, the moral prophecies from God. The wisdom behind his laws. Uh, no one else um, has it, and the ones they do have are very basic. You know, uh, the laws that, you know, you, you don't murder people in your village, for example. That just makes good sense. Um, anyway, the Athanasian Creed, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. He's always been. What about the Son? The Athanasian was able to articulate this trinity in such a way, you don't even have to improve it. He says, the Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten or emanating, coming from. Very much God. Um, your child is human. God's child is divine. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. It's just fantastic, a fantastic blend of the Trinity. So here in verse 2, we have a sevenfold gifts with a threefold application. I don't really like doing those kind of formulas because math makes my head hurt. But here it is. So seven attributes are mentioned or characteristics. Uh, the first, wisdom and understanding, well, that is for his government to be that hero judge, the judge that we know is going to do right. The counsel and the might is for conflict. He knows how to handle war and struggle and, and conflict. Hey, this is their Messiah. This is our Christ. Christ is a bigger word than Messiah. Messiah limits him to the Jewish people. Christ bursts out of that and takes in all humanity. He is the Messiah, Christ in any language. He is for any people that will belong to him. And we don't learn that till you get to the New Testament. And we find how difficult it was for Paul to communicate these things to a Jewish people that just didn't want to hear it, and to, not all of them, of course, and to a, a Gentile people who didn't want to hear it. Not all of them, but monumental tasks. Well, the, uh, the other is you have the wisdom, the understanding, the counsel, the might, the knowledge, the fear, and the fear of, of Yahweh. Well, that's for spiritual Spiritual leadership, um, all of these are vital characteristics. If you take any away, you have a defect. So they all belong, these, these seven, that complete number, with the, uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. God can't really rest on me because I have sin. He's always trying to work with, well, with Christ, there's nothing to do. Because he's every bit the son of the Father alone, not made nor created, but coming from. 
the only begotten Son. So the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. That's the first one which all the others are under this umbrella. He's divine. Paul said it this way. And you know, after three, over three decades of preaching God's word, I love it so much still. I'm never bored by it. I may struggle with familiarity, but uh, it's just amazing. It is still, if I were talking to the me on the day I was born again, to the me now, I would say, you just wait and see what's coming. There's so much more of a fight ahead to just burn out you know, anything that makes you think it's just a, this is a kid's game. This, this Christianity, when it holds up the cross, it says it's very serious. It is, death is involved in this. And there are types of death. There's a death of, death of the old man to sin, the physical death. There are, it's very just a beautiful thing. Anyway, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Here's how Paul said this. Same thing. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's everything in him that there needs to be. The Spirit of God is not resting upon him like it's, you know, wasn't there before. It's, it's, it's internal. As John witnessed, Luke 3, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, there's other verses we can cross-reference, but that this one is powerful enough. Of course, when the Lord enters public ministry in Nazareth, what does he start with? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he sits down, and everybody's looking at him. He said, this day, today, this verse is fulfilled. You're looking at the one that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon from Isaiah, not only Isaiah 11 as we know it, but Isaiah 60 also. So, 61. Anyway, coming back to this, and understanding. This is perfect aptitude. So if you're learning how to do something, uh, a new skill, you don't know if you have the aptitude for it until you begin to to work it. And then you find, hey, I I can do this. I mean, there are just certain jobs, you know, you say, I can't do that job. I can't even learn it. I, I don't have what it takes to know that, but I'm good at this. Well, with the Lord, his aptitude is perfect. Everything is understood by him. Uh, so we go to the next. Well, this understanding allows for perfect judgment, which lacks in human rulers and judges. He has a perfect knowledge. He's not guessing about anything. And that's why when you come to the section here, when he talks about he will judge without looking and hearing because his understanding is perfect. It is, uh, you know, the omniscience of the Lord. Revelation 3, this is what the Lord said to that church at Laodicea, filled with people that I don't like, but he loved, because he reaches out to them nonetheless. Imagine you're in the church at Philadelphia, and somebody comes in there and says, Hi, first time, yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. What church do you go to? Laodicea. Well, excuse me, i got to go. No, we can't do that. It's like somebody, anyway... I, I counsel you, Jesus said to that church, after, after laying them out how messed up they were. He says, I can't, here's, what I, here's my advice for you. Here's the spirit of counsel for you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. Identify what is valuable. Get it. Then he says, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed. You know, the, the mark of sin is nudity, exposure. Uh, shameful exposure. That, and he says that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Get, get control of your life. Cover up those things that no one wants to see. He continues, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Because you're blind. You think you have eyesight and therefore you're not blind. But I'm telling you, you can't see what you need to see. You are spiritually blind. But he just lays it out, right? Well, how does he do that? He has a spirit of counsel. And, and it's perfect counsel. Um, continuing, and might. Well, that's the enforcement element of God. Not only does he have the counsel, but he, Jesus, don't worry about those who can kill the body and can't bother the soul. You better worry about the one that can kill your soul by sending it to hell. That would be him. 
And so, of might, Revelation 19.1, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Well, it's just amazing. Uh, the spirit of knowledge. This is perfect awareness. John chapter 2, 25 says it. <clears throat> he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man, in dogs, in leaves, in molecules. He's got it all. And yet he comes like this person that doesn't even tell you he's got, <clears throat> got it all. He's unassuming. But then when you start seeing him wiping out diseases, he's touching people. You've got to be able to say, this is like nothing else. i got to go to the Bible to find out what this means. And the fear of the Lord. Now, this is God's, this is the presence of God embraced. It is perfect respect, perfect reverence, perfect holiness. There's no lapse. There's no, well, that was... I shouldn't have said that. That was crass. That was a cheap shot. Just none of that. The fear of the Lord is just total recognition of what God is all about. And so we have these seven attributes, and that in the Bible, of course, seven is the number of completion overall. And we get that by looking at the pattern. Seven days in a week, seven colors in a righteous rainbow. Six in hell's rainbow, in case you want to know. Uh, and we don't feel embarrassed in telling people that. No, that I, my, my rainbow's from God. When God looks at the seven-colored rainbow, he remembers that he makes promises and keeps them. That's what the, where the rainbow came from. The rainbow was there already. I mean, if you held it, you know, if, you, if, 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 if Noah went by a waterfall, he could see a rainbow at the right, if the lighting was right. The difference is it wasn't assigned meaning meaning by God until God did it after the flood. So from now on, when you see a rainbow, you understand I see the rainbow. You understand the promise associated with this rainbow. So, I mean, the rainbow is just you know, this beautiful thing. But it's, it's glorious because of what God said. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Jericho was marched around seven times before God dropped the walls. Naaman was instructed to dip in the Jordan River seven times. A child raised by Elijah was sneezed upon seven times, which is kind of counterintuitive. So you're trying to make the child better. Sneezing on him, really? Uh, and then we have a, a, Elijah sent his servant to spot the rain cloud seven times before it was official. Nebuchadnezzar was insane for seven years. I know people that can beat that. Then there are the seven words of the cross. So you see that pattern? In each event, it was a complete moment when it reached seven. Now, this is not a formula uh, for us to then, okay, if I do this seven times, God will do this. No, that's that's not the, the teaching. The teaching is learn from what's happening in the scripture. Have those eyes that Laodicea missed out on that have been treated with the right stuff. So in Revelation, you come to the book of Revelation, you have seven churches, seven lamps, seven scrolls, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And it means something. Uh, when the seventh lamp uh, or the, the seventh uh, seal is broken, oh man, watch out. Then there's going to be seven trumpets. And by the time the seventh one, so when you get to the, to the seventh bowl, the iniquity has been dealt with. And the wrath is complete. So these are biblical consistencies for our instruction, not formulas for us to say, well, I have the sevenfold church. Um, anyway, the seven spirits, again, reference to the completeness of God, lacking nothing. That's where we get omniscience omnipresence, omnipotence, ubiquity. All these things belong to him. Verse 3 now, we can do this. Um, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he, shall, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. He is the hero judge. He can say to the opposing attorney, I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear it. 
Not because I'm shutting you down, because I already had the answer. And I don't need to hear it come from your mouth. You need to hear what I'm saying from my mouth. That's what this is. His delight is in the, in the, that fear, is that holiness of the Lord. And holiness is that. Take the sandals off your feet, for the ground you stand upon is holy. Moses had to say, okay, there's no place else on earth like this. So did Joshua. He is never distracted from the holiness of God. We are. You will be on your way home more than likely if you're driving. So that's one of the best things about living in the age of automobiles. You can always point to sin by just pointing to driving. Anyway, uh, this part, his delight is in the fear of Yahweh. He's never distracted in his holiness. John chapter 8, verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Nobody can say that. Not in its absolute sense. I can get it right a lot of times, but not all the times. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. He doesn't need physical created senses to get to the bottom of things. He already knows. <clears throat> and uh, we don't have time to illustrate them. So the sevenfold attributes remove doubt, remove inaccuracy and injustice from his judgments. This makes him our hero judge. And the judge has power to decide the future of human beings, their lives in this life and the next one. So it is a big deal. It's a very big deal. He said, it says here in verse 3, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. No external influence. You, you can't, you know, oh, I didn't get that. He, got, he gets it all. His verdicts are sure. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or when I, where can I flee from your presence? Well, as Jonah found out, you can't. He is ubiquitous. Well, we have New Testament applications of this knowledge. I'll take the short one. John 8, 6. This they said, <clears throat> excuse me, testing him, that they might have something to which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, we don't know what he wrote. This is when they wanted to stone the woman who was caught in adultery. They were trying to murder her and let him get off, the, the, the man that she committed the adultery with get off the hook. That was just only one of the injustices. Hosea called that long before that, that that kind of injustice wouldn't be tolerated by God, that they were doing these things. So he writes on the ground something. Well, whatever it was, it had to do with them as individuals. And then he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and walked away. Now, in ancient Israel, there were little booths everywhere. And you just would break it with a glass. It would be a rock inside, a stone. In case of an emergency stoning, they always had stones around. There are Christians who live that way. All they do is want to stone you with their tongue, just criticize everybody. And it's just like, man, where's the love? Well, I love to stone you. Anyway, just may we not be that way. Maybe not be, maybe just remember that doesn't mean we're accepting iniquity and sin. It just means we're careful how we deal with it. There's a human being on the other end who Christ died for. And I sure like it when people show me mercy. I think some of you need to up it a little bit and start showing me a little bit more mercy. <laughs> I think that about everybody. Anyway, that's humor attempts. Verse 4. But with righteousness, righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth with equity. For the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So, uh, you know, first, uh, Second Samuel, David wrote, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Well, this is what, who he is. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth, that's fairness. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. It's a different word for... Um, rod here than in verse 1, that, that shoot from the stump. It's a different Hebrew word. This is a staff to strike with. Um, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth because he's got that kind of power. This is the one that, the might of God that we, we've referenced. And in other words, he knows how to deal blows to the wicked. 
And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Well, it's complete, complete intolerance of iniquity, of wickedness, not iniquity, of wickedness. There will come a time where he just won't have any of it. And having watched wickedness prevail prevail for so long, the righteous read that. We say, yay, yes, Lord. And that will be it in the millennial reign. In verse 5, the righteousness shall be, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. So, a striking figure of righteousness and faithfulness. Just looking at him. And we look at Christ now through scripture. He says, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear, verse 7, shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Well, um, this, this is the millennial reign. You know, leopards, I've learned some things about leopards over the fast, fast. They, they're, they're mean creatures. They just will scratch you up for just, they were passing by. Well, I'm, I get this. I see, I see these leopards of these videos, these leopards running through these crowds and as they're running for their life, they stop, do a little damage, and keep running. Where other animals just run and get out of there. They're like, no, that guy needs to be slapped. And so they, it's just interesting. Uh, but the curse upon creation itself will be drastically altered. The idea of a predator-prey relationship will vanish. And, um, you know, you lion, you have a, a lamb go by a wolf. And the wolf would say something like, you know, in the old days, I'd eat you. But now I got a hankering for straw. Anyways, this utopian world, it will exist in Christ. The animal kingdom will be domesticated, herbivores. Uh, the nursing child, verse 8, shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. See, they're going to still be serpents and stuff, such. That's, that's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to heaven. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, or Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. And so uh, creation will be restored. Verse 10, sure you can create comment more on all this. Even Paul does in Romans 8. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles will seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So he's, he's evolved from the Jewish Messiah to the global Christ uh, in, in, in that sense of fulfilled, the steps of fulfilled prophecy. Verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros, Cush, okay, these other places, Shinar, ancient Babylon, so, how many times has the Lord called back his people to the land? Twice. One, from the Babylonian captivity that was started by Zerubbabel, it's recorded in Ezra. The second time is in 1948, when the Jews were given their land back to them as a sovereign nation. Uh, and the Jews are very serious about bringing Jews into the promised land. If you can prove Jewish heritage... You get to be a Jewish citizen. They're fierce about it. They were flying them in from Russia. Some of you might remember when the Soviet Union fell, the Jews were actively bringing as many Jewish people into the promised land as, as they could. And that is the beginning of this, this fulfillment. Isaiah 43, 6, we'll get into it then yet again. Verse 13, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut down. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So sibling rivalry of the wicked type kind will be gone, verse 14. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Mount Edom, on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. So the enemies, surrounding enemies, will be subdued. These are inveterate enemies. There's always been. Verse 15, Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. With his, mighty, with his mighty wind, he shall shake his fist over the river and strike it 
in the seven streams, uh, strike it in the seven streams and make man cross dry shod. So the Red Sea will be made land and the Euphrates River, as that's what he's talking about, his fist over the river, that's the Euphrates, uh, it, it shall be turned into seven streams, shallowness. Verse 16, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And so Isaiah saw the end time victories. Um, the, Assyrians, the Assyrians, they inflicted havoc on the promised land they had dealt with. And that brings us to chapter 12, and the only commentary necessary because it's a psalm. It's very easy to understand when he says he's praising the Lord, we know he's praising the Lord. You don't need a pastor to tell you, let me tell you what that means. Uh, it's a celebration of the hero God. That's all chapter 12 is, this just celebration of Isaiah praising the Lord. When everybody around him, except the remnant, was uh, mocking God. Let's pray. Father, your word, thorough, clean, trustworthy. You are the hero God. We love you for how you, your judgments are sure. They are fair and they are altogether glorious because it is your doing. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.